Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we are here with Charlie Green, who's the co-founder at The Office Group and a very timely interview as people are now pretty much firmly back at The Office, uh, we'd say. Charlie, how are things going? Is, this, uh, is there a sort of uh, a degree to which this is maybe a vindication a little bit of what you've been doing for the last 20 years, this this need for flexibility, this need for, for, for better quality workspace, collaboration, great design, and obviously fantastic coffee, which are all the things that you've been uh, promoting for the last 20 years. I would say, I'm not sure we've ever sought vindication. We just sort of focused on what we do and how we do it. And we tried to create something that was really meeting the needs of what occupiers wanted. And we've been trying to do that. We started a business 18 years ago, so we've been we've been pushing that. We're advocates for change, right? So it's, we feel that it is not just about our business, but that the real estate industry as a whole should be actually reacting to what occupiers need. And to that extent, I would say that we're seeing a really, truly significant moment in time where the understanding, and I think it's moving from sort of this sort of thinking about it that for real estate companies to think about what they're doing and addressing those needs to talking about it, to actually now doing something about it. So for me, uh, really an exciting time for our business because we're, we're, we're hopefully um, set for growth to meet uh, uh, what is a significant increase in demand, but also wholesale change, I think, will come over a period of time now to uh, throughout the industry to meet those needs. Hmm. Look, let's dial back a little bit. So to talk us through, talk us through a bit of your story, how you ended up you know, aligned with, with Blackstone running London or one of the country's leading office developers and operators. What 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 were some of the steps on your early journey? Essentially, I'm a chartered surveyor, so I, I did estate management at Oxford Poly, which became Oxford Brooks, and I got into the real estate industry. And I was perplexed, really, at the sort of, I guess, the very linear relationship that was there between landlord and tenant. And also, I think there seemed to me to be a sort of a real lack of creativity in terms of the the delivery of the product, the product being the bricks and mortar. Hmm. So that was the starting point. Uh, I then worked for a highly innovative business called MWB, Marylebone Warwick Balfour. and sort Richard of cut, Balfour Lynn. Yeah, cut my teeth there, learnt an awful lot of good things and an awful lot of things not to do. Um, yes, not and, yeah. and met, His legacy is not, not the most positive thing to be. But he, he was a quite brilliant entrepreneur. So he saw things differently. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from that. And my biggest learning was to look at real estate with a different He's lens. doing cider now in Kent, isn't he? That's his thing. Uh, some very good wine, apparently. I've not had it. English wine. Terrific, yeah. So at that, uh, at MWB, I met my my business partner, co-founder, Ollie Olson, and we just had a shared vision of trying to do something differently. And it was very clear that at MWB, we launched Business Exchange, which was the sort of the equivalent to Regis. And that essentially had a business plan to mimic Regis with a view to then selling to that company, mm. now IWG. Uh, but really, we looked at when we were delivering that, and I worked on the real estate side, and Ollie worked on the revenue and operations side. And we felt that the product was very vanilla. It was very bland. It was very corporate. And what we couldn't understand was that if you, as a person working in an office, spending the majority of your working hours, were in an environment that was somewhere you wanted to get away from, that just was, there was a disconnect there for us that we 
we wanted to address. I guess expectations were pretty low, much like a lot of industries at that point. Well, the reason that people signed up with serviced offices was for the flexibility. So they would they would move in, and the day one they'd be thinking about moving out. And we just tried to turn that on its head and say, "Hey, move in, have the flexibility, but we're going to give you something that is so good in terms of quality, design, hmm. and service and value. You'll have the flexibility, but you won't exercise it because you'll want to stay." Yeah. And that was our business premise that was the ethos that's how we started the business. And, and who were some of the guiding lights that took you through the early part of your career other than other than Richard Balfour Lynn uh, well actually Ollie's uncle uh, John Harrison was uh, at MWB as well he was a founder at MWB I referred to him as Uncle John and, and John very much you know was was a mentor to both Ollie and me as we started the business as a business uh, and one that has had to evolve massively over the years how are you now evolving your product and your service to deal with this you know the hybrid working the the co-location of people because it's a pain in the bum isn't it really having to sit there in a meeting with people on the telly uh who aren't quite there have you got any holograms yet (laughs) no Ah, look, there's such transformational change, right, in how we're working. And, and what would life have been like if we didn't have that digital solution to how we work, right, through the, through the pandemic? Yeah. Uh, it would have been uh, uh, extraordinary. So here we have a digital tool that has enabled us to continue to work and be productive. That's a brilliant thing, right? And it's helped us get through this period. What you're seeing now, and, and it's really interesting because people's views change as you move through the cycles and the phases, right? Yeah. The immediate knee-jerk response to the pandemic and lockdown was, wow, we can all work from home. This is brilliant. The office is dead. Nobody's going to come back to the office. Fantastic. Uh, and that was the overall sentiment that you saw. And then it starts to change. And look, human nature requires different things. And working from home and just working on a digital platform will I think turn out to be a fundamental tool of how we do business moving forward, but is not going to be the backbone or is not going to be the, the I suppose, the, the, the main thrust of how we interact with each other. So then the return to the office, what does that look like? And, and, and the hybrid way of working and how, that, how you use your, your video conferencing for that moving forward is really is really fascinating and the hybrid working right now we're seeing that there's going to be three-day weeks uh we're seeing, so most people are going to be on the sort of tuesday wednesday thursday coming to the it's office the jeremy corwin working week isn't it yeah i get look there, there's that although actually people are going to be working when they're not in the office and that's the difference right that we're going to be using our, our, our teams and our zoom to still work and still be able to contribute to the business as effectively as we did before yeah, absolutely that's a good point but look, this is three days a week, and we're seeing some companies who are saying we're going to do eighty percent, twenty percent. We're going to see some companies who are going to who are saying to us they're doing full resets for a period of time. Mm. So everybody's going to come in in the normal way for a working week for five days a week for one week. Some companies are going to do that for a month, and then they're going to see what happens. I tell you, what will happen is it will evolve and it will change. But you also have to remember this this is different for every single company because every company works differently. Mm. And this is different for every individual within those companies because they work differently. And what, what you patterns- can't sorry, but but the, the problem you've got with all of this hybrid working is that how do you manage it? How do you manage people coming into the business? We have to run our businesses and that's complex and it's challenging and it's difficult. Yeah. You add a layer of management, which is I now need to tell you when you can come in and when you can't come in and where you sit and how you, that's, that's tough, right? You're asking companies to do a lot there. So I think the coming back to the office, I think will be really interesting 
in if we have another conversation in six months, another conversation in 12 months, it will look different. Mm. And that people will come back and it will be closer to how it was before, but it will never be the same as it was before. Mm. And the other thing that I think people require is not just about communication, because we all know the benefits of being face-to-face as opposed to being on screen. That's a given. The other thing is, what are people coming back to? What is that office environment? What does it look like? And what does it give them? So we traded through 2009. 2009 was tough. We saw that we had people leave us and we get hit as a, as a I guess, as a, an industry. Real single biggest world. expense after staff, aren't you? Well, sometimes more so. Yeah. And so the flexible world is, offers flexibility. So you lose income quickly as an operator, but mm. your recovery is much quicker. Yeah. And what we saw in 2009 is that actually the best buildings in the best locations come back really quickly and they come back at the right kind of revenue levels that you need. Yeah. And we're seeing that again today. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, but best buildings, best locations, you've really got to deliver quality. And that quality has to come out in the design, the aesthetic. It has to come out in the, in the functionality of that space. How are you using that space? What are you doing in that space? It's got to come out in the range of services and the amenities, as well, of course, as the flexibility and the level of service. Right, We have to be, and it's not just TOG, right? This, and it's not just the flex sector or the surface office sector. The real estate industry needs to be thinking about being in the hospitality industry, whether it's hotels or offices or whatever, or residential. We have to be looking after the people who are coming into our buildings. And we have to have a relationship that is entirely different to how it was before because it's always been absent. What does that then look like from an occupier perspective? Because I guess some people will look at the TOG model and go, well, it's just bloody expensive service offices. Why would we pay all that money? What, what, what are we paying for? Why, why, would you, why would you say it's bloody expensive? Well, I'm just saying I'm, I'm, that is what people do say. That is what people do say about service offices. They, they say, well, why would we pay more money when we can get a, a lease that's, that's, that's 30% of the price? 30% less. Well, I think, I think you have to look at the overall. That, that is what some people will say. That's not necessarily my view. Yeah. So, so look, the response to that is you have to look at the overall occupational cost of a traditional lease with rent rates and service charges and everything that's included with there. Compare it on therefore on a like for like basis with what's included in in a in one in a flex offer, and then I think you'll find that actually what we're trying to do is deliver value. Assets traditionally have been let to generate revenue from rent only, and we're looking at assets in a different way. Mm. We're trying to extract revenue from all sorts of different routes. And, and that means that we can use that asset. Now, that might mean that we hire out the space for events in an evening or on a weekend. Mm. It may mean that we generate revenue from meeting rooms or from catering. And these, these services generate revenue are being paid for only when they're needed and when they're used. Mm. And so there's a very different approach to value creation for us as a business and I think a very different approach then to, to value delivery for the occupier. But I think there's also a degree to which, as an occupier, you don't often see those extra costs. And, and for, certainly for, for, you know, it's different if you're a big corporate, but for a smaller business, 50 to 100 people, they don't understand business rates. They don't understand service charge. They, they, you know, they'll often send a PA or office manager to go and do an office search and then get hit for those other costs. And I think that's one of the things where, where the service sector, the serviced office sector, has got real leverage just in being able to offer, you pay what you see. Well, I, I think that's right. And I think that there's something about the, the, the sort of the cost of flexibility or lack of flexibility. 
Right. If you think about the pandemic that we've been through, the number of companies that have, were locked into leases that they couldn't get out of. Mm. Now, the moratorium has protected tenants, and so we'll see when that lifts what the what the consequence of that will be. Yeah. But actually, the benefit of being able to downsize, to to exit your contract, to grow, because there are certainly some companies who have grown through the pandemic as well. Mm. What have been some of the, the big challenges you've overcome supporting occupiers over the last 18 months? So things that the business has been able to do and respond to that really help make a difference. Because this has been one of the good things about the last period is actually the good guys in, in this sector have really stepped up. And we, we've seen that in retail, in Chelsea, with, with people like Cadogan. We've seen it, uh, certainly seen it across the board in, in life sciences, businesses like, like Biomed responding to the crisis. And I'm guessing you will have had a lot of occupiers with a lot of challenges that, that you've been able to, to help help support them through. Well, in the majority of our occupiers are smaller businesses. Uh, but again, from 2009, we, we, we were able to respond very quickly, I think, because we learned how to deal with it in that period. And I think there were real parallels with this period in terms of financial pressure for companies. So what we what we knew was that we had to deal with every company individually. Mm. You couldn't take a blanket approach and just say, this is our policy, deal with it. So, so how do you we, do that though? I mean, you've got what, 40 office spaces? Uh, well, so well, we have 50, 53 buildings in the portfolio of which uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we probably had, yeah, 41, 42 open. So about 20,000 members? Yeah, about 1,250 companies. And those, many of those companies, the majority of those companies, over half, came to us for some kind of financial support. Yeah. And you have to assess every individual's situation and you have to deal with that. So we were pulling in teams from our side to deal with the quantum of work from all sorts of departments and training them up and training them how to give them the tools to be able to deal with those clients. Yeah. And look, we're here for the long term as a business. So for us to take a mercenary approach and and stand back from it was is not the right thing for us to do if we want to continue to be in business and to continue to have relationships with those companies. And, and so, and it was notable that in you were also one of the very few players in your space to continue paying your own lease costs, weren't you? So again, if we think about the future of this business, we want to grow. We always took the view that we'd come out of the pandemic at some point that when that happens, that we believe that the demand will increase, which mm. we're seeing uh, in terms of the size of the market looking for flexible space. That, uh, that if we want to then grow to meet that demand, we need to have uh, uh, to be best placed to do that is to be the operator that was seen as the safest pair of hands by uh, both landlords and partners uh, as well as our clients. Mm. So it was important to us to pay the rent. There's also a slight moral unease of not paying our rent and still asking people to pay their rent. And mm. so I think it allowed us the justification to say, we'll help you, but we're still going to ask for your rental income. If you can't pay it or there's a problem, we'll work with you. But hey, we're paying our rent. So, and and also remember that we own a good chunk of our portfolio as well. Yeah. And you've got you've got quite a, an interesting pipeline of, of new developments coming forward as well, haven't you? We do. Yeah. Which, which ones gonna... should we talk about? Let's talk, well, about the, let's talk about the black and white building because I, I went to see it. It's, it's around the corner from my boxing gym. It's in Rivington Street, your building, boxing gym is on Boundary Street, if anyone's interested. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's an astonishing building because it's 
pretty much the first timber building in London for, for several hundred years, according to the architect, Andrew Wall. Uh, so apparently it's the first timber building since, since the Great the Fire, Fire of London. Yeah. Fire so, of London. But, but uh, just to be clear, it's all timber above ground. So uh, I think there are a number of timber structures that are sort of uh, have a steel frame and just timber clad. This is full timber above ground. It's, it's an amazing structure. The consent you, you, you achieved initially was for a traditionally built structure, wasn't it? And you then went back in and, and have adjusted Section 73 to, to adjust it to, to, to be a timber. Well, we bought it. We actually bought the building with a, it was a 10,000 square foot building that came with the benefit of a planning consent for a new build. Okay. For, for, for uh, this it was an old similar size. warehouse, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. It was. We, did, we just didn't like the scheme that, that, that we inherited. So we went back and revised it. And actually, look, sustainability has been a key consideration for us since we started the business, pretty much. And we very much believe that you can deliver on sustainability uh, and have a commercial benefit to it as well. Because look, this is such a positive thing that people buy into. So why why wouldn't you do it? And hard to justify the cost because you can't relate a, a direct return on that investment. But you know, Ollie and I very much you know were aware that if we invested to create those those features that that were very clear, a clear expression of, of sustainability that that clients coming to our buildings would buy into that and they did and and so we we from the early days we had green roofs and solar panels and gray water uh, recycling and oh gosh recycled materials and kind of flow restrictors on taps all, all, all that kind of thing yogurt carton kitchen tops so we've always believed in it and yet here we had this opportunity to do something significant well, yeah, I mean, the embodied carbon of a building is 80% of the problem, and often people are too busy changing the light bulbs to notice, aren't they? But this, it's so, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, look, it's, we're, 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 you'd normally sort of, you'd burn your timber for, to oh, yes. create the steel, right? Biomass, steel structure. Biomass, we're the, taking, great, the great solution to yeah, the climate we're, we're, was always but we're biomass, taking, wasn't it? Yeah, we're taking that timber to, you know, we're just kind of cutting out a... So did, did you, was, was there a challenge with planners? Because we're pretty backward in this country when it comes to building regs. We've pretty much all but banned timber when it comes to residential. There are a number of commercial schemes going going forward, but people are still people are still a bit scared, aren't they? So this is in London Borough of Hackney. It took a 10,000 square foot building to 40,000 square feet. And I don't think we could have got more support from Hackney. They're pretty progressive when it comes to their environmental challenges. So this sale through... A committee mm. and on a general commercial level you're going to have a pretty unique offer and and i guess also given the way that your business has, has evolved over recent years you're, you're now focusing a lot more on you on, on on enterprise clients and and those sorts of bigger businesses bigger occupiers they're, they're going to have they're going to have pretty pretty embedded values themselves aren't they you know you are seeing the likes of amazon claim oh we're not claiming but they're pledging to become carbon neutral, carbon negative. Microsoft had pledged to be carbon negative by 2030. So they're going to balance out all of the old boxes that used to get windows in, massive boxes you used to, used to get CD-ROMs in. So there's going to be a fair, amount of, uh, <laughs> a fair amount of tree planting, I suspect. But, but, the, the, but, but you know, joking aside, the sorts of occupiers that Tog wants to attract, they would actually put a pretty hefty premium on being in that kind of building, wouldn't they? I think that applies to everybody. I don't think it's about the enterprise clients or the bigger companies. I think everybody wants to. And look, there's a vicarious benefit, right? So as a business, if you're taking the black and white building for your office space and you're able to demonstrate to your clients that you are meeting your 
environmental mission statement, even though you haven't done the work, but you happen to be in a building that ticks all the boxes you need. Mm. What a brilliant thing that is. You could be a two-person business or you could be Amazon. So I, look, I, I think it's perhaps there's a, a corporate requirement for the bigger companies to deliver on that, but I think there's an equal desire from smaller companies to, to, mm. to have that. And but be it, able to talk about but it. it. But it also aligns also it also aligns very nicely with with a lot of Blackstone's values in terms of supporting uh, the environment and, and delivering on various ESG commitments. And you know it's a it's a good exemplar for that, isn't it? I hope so. With Blackstone, we, we we're very aligned as 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 a business in terms of values and aligned as people. One of the reasons that we wanted to have them invest in our business was because we just had this great admiration for them. And yes, they're the largest investor in real estate globally, but actually these are great people and we want to work with people that we like working with. So the values comes into it. So if they have a, 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 if ESG is very high up on their agenda, which it is, well, you know what, it's high up on ours as well. Not because of them, but the fact that we that we're aligned is, um, mm. Is I think a, a bit more a bit more genuine than in in our determination to meet that, mm. and and presumably as well being part of that global ecosystem is also pretty helpful. Being part of the Blackstone ecosystem and all of the the skills, expertise, and, and other partner businesses that that come with that, we of course we we get tremendous benefit from working with them. Look as as an example, we're in Germany now. We have five buildings in Germany, and so one of the reasons that we went there was because they have such a significant exposure to that market that we can find a building and pick up the phone to to the team to the Blackstone team and ask them their views on 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 a building, and they'll be able to tell us who the occupiers were, who the landlords are, what the rent was next door, whether it's a good street or not a good street, and it, it, you start to have an accelerated knowledge of, of, uh, of a market which you wouldn't otherwise get. And that's a tremendous advantage and gives you real confidence you're going to make the right decisions. Mm. And, and in terms of, I guess, in terms of, of future growth, where else is that going to occur? There was a time uh, several months back, well, people are still talking about it, actually, that, but, but people have been talking about localised hubs, regional spaces, in places like Guildford, Hertfordshire. I was out in, in, in Edge of Cambridge, actually, this, earlier this week and travelled in and out of Newport, which I've never been to, Newport and Cambridge. And uh, apparently even there, there's a, there's a, there's a small service office that, that's popped up. Are we going to see TOG buildings in more of those sorts of regional locations? Well, I think you're going to see commuter hubs. You're, you're going to see flexible operators in those locations. It's something that we're looking at and we're, we're doing some research on and trying to understand the economics of it. But it's a challenge at the moment. So the question I suppose that you have to ask first is, is there demand for that kind of product? And I would say today there probably is. Where is that demand coming from? Is it coming from corporates or is it coming from individuals? And, and so that then starts to give you an understanding of longevity of income. So if we go into those areas, we need to be really certain because we're we're committing to either buying a building or taking a 10, 15-year lease. Mm. And if we have that kind of financial commitment, we need to be really certain that the income we can generate from there has has real longevity and can endure. So, But what about the ability to make a market? Because again, in many cases, there might not be demand in a certain place like, I don't know, Guildford, but most people recognize there's a lot of well-paid people that work around there that probably commute into London for, for big corporates. And if you created such a facility, they, they would come. Possibly. It's early days. It remains to be seen. So uh, because we don't know how often people are going to come back to the office. So if people are going to come back to the office in central London for three days a week, are they going to use 
a local office for Mondays and Fridays. And if they're only going to use it for Mondays and Fridays and they're going to use their office in central London as well, how is that cost going to be able to be met by that user of that space? So it's, mm. a, it's a difficult economic challenge. Uh, you know, are they in fact, you know, do do the like do the affluent market in Guildford have enough space at home to want to work at home rather than go to, you know, 15 minutes Probably as put opposed a to 45 pot minutes. at the end of the garden, couldn't they? Maybe. So it's it's it I don't know what the answer is right now, but it's a I think the a answer is to, we'll is see. To the, the answer, Charlie, is you license the TOG design for modular garden pods and you let everyone have a TOG at home. Andrew, if I hadn't come onto this podcast, I would never have <laughs> been inspired by that idea. Thank you. It's a mic drop moment. Oh, well, there we go. Well, we've, we've got it on tape that, that Charlie's just agreed to pay me a 10% license fee for any 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 TOG module that's sold to anyone's. Any, uh, any hedge fund gardens in Guildford this will, come like back, this will come back to bite me, won't it? At yeah, some absolutely. Point, yeah. Any, hedge fund, uh, any hedge fund gardeners listening to this podcast, <laughs> email charlie at, at officemodules.com and he will send you, <laughs> he'll send someone around to do the measurements next week. But let, look, let's move on. Thinking about design, something you've been always very passionate about, it's one of the key, it's one of those key values that people associate with TOG, that you have fantastic design and, and that's something you've really kicked the ball out of the park on for years. How is that now evolving to to meet everyone's focus on the circular economy, on well-being, on healthy materials, and, and obviously air quality as well? What are you having to do differently that you maybe didn't have to do when you started the business? Uh, you've got to work harder and you've got to invest more. So the, the level of expectation is so much greater today than it, than it ever was. So I remember when we when we opened our third building on Greville Street, which is a Victorian warehouse, we had openable windows. That was great. And, but we didn't put in air conditioning because we couldn't afford it. So, but what we said to clients was, well, hey, we did this. You can open the windows. It's natural ventilation here. And that's that's our that's the approach we've taken with this building. And people bought into that. But today, people want choice. So it requires greater investment. They, they want better quality, as I was referencing earlier but the irony is of course that you you have all the windows shut to protect everybody then you spend loads of money with air filtering systems when you could have just opened the windows in the first place yeah but but you can't dictate people's behavior and, and again everybody's different so you have to be able to meet both and some people want to have natural ventilation and some people some people don't so the air quality again is going to be something that comes out of this period that is much more important to people than it's ever been before so we really have to think about that. The challenge is then how do you how do you deal with the older buildings? The newer buildings actually you incorporate it now into your design. Yeah. Yeah. And and are you having to to think about rearranging spaces to meet the needs for meeting spaces and collaboration areas? I was on a call with one of the big law firms the other day and, and the guys were working at home from probably from Guildford, not in a module, but they were they were saying, look, we'd be in the office, but Law firm X, I won't name it. Law firm X doesn't have enough space. Blimey, they're a big law firm, a very big office. How have they not got space? Oh, I'm not important enough. But I think they were joking. But the point, obviously, if, if big law firms are running out of space now, how are a business like yours that are, that are obviously set up to serve the more flexible types of occupier, how, how are you adapting your own space to to meet those sorts of needs? Changing. Uh, well, I guess there are two parts to the question. One is what, how much space do companies need moving forward, and, and I would say give or take, they probably need a similar a similar quantum. I think those companies. But it's more about what they want the space for, isn't it? Well, it's it's sort of both because you've got to weave one into the other. So yeah. uh, uh, what we're seeing is the larger companies are saying, "Hey, we want more within our office." 
So we have to redesign the offices for the for the enterprise clients. Want their own meeting rooms. They want their own kitchens. They want their own breakout space within their space. But we're also having to deliver those things for for the smaller companies as well. And then it's about trying to understand that behavior. Are they looking to collaborate more? Is it projects? Look, fifty percent of all of our inquiries for office space today are coming from companies that do not have an office. So those are businesses that are not startups. Those are established companies who said, I don't need an office during the pandemic. And they were able to exit their leases or, or get out of their flex space. Mm. And they're now coming back and, and, and seeking space. And bear in mind, so 50% of our inquiries coming from, from, from that audience. And we are also at the, uh, at the highest level of inquiries that we've ever had for office space. So, mm. so this is a significant number. And how are things but, change? Well, to, just to say on that, the, the, those companies, they're thinking about how much space do they need. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because we'll see a company of 50 people will say, give me an office for 30 people. And I need membership cards that allow others to come in and use the building on an ad hoc basis. And actually, the, there's another fascinating point to it, which is the network effect and choice of where you can work. We give them memberships. They can work in any top building across the portfolio. So here's a here's a company taking an office space for 30 people, but yeah. actually 50 people use it. And clear example is BP, who took one of our buildings in its entirety. And it's a, a building for 700 people, but they have a 1,000 people using it. They're just not going to be all there at the same time. Mm. But with that, when you're taking less space, it gives you then the need to add on to that for those moments when you do need people to come together. So what we're, I think we're going to be seeing is an increase in, in how people are hiring rooms from us, meeting rooms or just rooms that they can work in on a day basis or a week basis. And that, I think, will be really interesting. Mm. And the many companies are going to be thinking about, okay, fine, if I to get people together, where can I do that that's more convenient? And how can I do that and take on that space to bring people together that isn't a commitment of a year or five years or 10 years. It's probably quite a good thing if, if more of buildings are used more of the time. I mean, it's like anything, anything in life, isn't it? You're seeing the same thing in fashion, aren't we, with people renting out expensive dresses that they've worn more than once. And same thing for a lot of, you know, you think a lot of big corporate buildings, a lot of those rooms probably don't get touched much. Um, well, I think... But think about banks, right? Think about how many bank branches are up and down the country. Think about all the offices above those banks that have never probably been used until last March. Mm. And, you know, you all these banks that have probably sat on all this real estate thinking, oh, crikey, do I need this expensive building in the middle of X or can I just send people to the local office? Probably not going to be very much fun working at it, but it'll be an office with a desk with a power socket and a window, maybe. Well, it's a, it's an interesting one for big corporates who... So, so we, we were talking to one of the big five accountancy firms about coming up with a solution for them for for their employees. And actually one of the issues they had, and this was about saying, okay, hey, maybe we do open in the regions and sort of give you something for your employees who live in Guildford. Yeah. And they said, well, that's great, but it doesn't really solve a problem for me. In fact, it creates a bit of a, it creates a problem in that I can't, if you, unless you have locations everywhere in every sort of commuter town, yeah. that I can't give something that's equitable to all of my employees. I can only give it to those that live in Guildford. So yeah. how do I do that? How do I manage that? And how do I deal with the fact that some people can say, hang on, you've given them that extra benefit, but I don't have that. Well, you take a pre-let with Tog and you agree to 12 locations. <laughs> yeah. But then the, the, but the bigger issue for them was that they still want people to come together. So just giving a, the opportunity for two or three people to work in the same office who may not work in the same department doesn't really help them. Actually, a more interesting thing is for a company that is based in Canary Wharf to have 
uh, an office that is in central London, in King's Cross or Euston, where yeah. they can take a bigger office and get 30, 40, 50 people together. Well, so those are the sorts of solutions that we're looking at for the bigger corporates. Let's talk about the new scheme you've got planned at King's Cross. We had Nick Searle and Robert Evans on Bosscast a couple of weeks ago. They were great fun. Talked a lot about their new baby uh, that is Brent Cross Town. But, but you've got a new collaboration with those chaps in King's Cross. And that's focusing on targeting the smaller end of the, of, of the market, smaller businesses, startups. I think the it's big, right? So it's 170,000 square feet. I think we're going to target everybody. This is going to be this incredible ecosystem in a building of the the, the individuals, the freelancers, the startups, the mm. smallest companies through to through to the enterprise, all in the same building. Of course, all sharing. Google Universal Music on your doorstep. Incredible. King's Cross is like one of it's just such an extraordinary development in 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 London. And the, the, Nick and Robert and and. Um, the Argent team who, who delivered it over what is such a long period of time. I guess they're probably, what, 15 years into it, maybe more, and they've got some way to go yet. There's very few companies who could have delivered that uh, in the way they've delivered it as well. So, yeah, we're, we're really excited to work on that building with them. And we're already we're, we're there. We've got two buildings there, so we know it well. We know them really well. Lovely, lovely guys. We get on really well with them. And where do you see, where do you see pricing coming forward in the market? Are, are you, we had... A similar discussion um, with with Simon Durkin, um, and, and his view on on our podcast was that we were going to see a a real bifurcation of the market, as we did with retail around 2010, where you'll see Prime coming back and and the real enviable kit coming back up here, and everything else just just splitting away. Is that you were talking a bit earlier about focusing on? on the best locations, which which makes sense. Farringdon was was an inspired choice. Greville Street, given obviously where Farringdon's got to you now, ridiculous pricing. But are you are you expecting to be able to pick up some really cheap kit as uh, as prices settle down over the next six, 12 months? Uh, I'm not sure they're going to settle down. No? No. We're not, we're certainly, we're not seeing any pricing adjustment in the market today. Rents are holding. Tenant centres are holding. Is that uh, just people being stubborn and, and naive, or I don't know. It's but they're holding capital values. Therefore, as a consequence, are holding. So we're not seeing any softening on pricing. So if we want to, does that grow, make sense? People only coming to the office for six percent of the time. How can that possibly make any sense? Well, I think there's a belief that it's it's going to be more than sixty percent of the time. Mm. Ultimately. And look, if you take my example of a 50-person business uh, having 30 people using their office, well, you can extrapolate that and apply it to a much larger organization that instead of taking 250,000 square feet is now going to look at 150,000 square feet, but it's still a requirement for 150,000 square feet. Mm. But so, they might be happy to pay the price of 250 square feet, which is obviously what you're hoping. And that well, I think they'll pay. Well, I suspect that's what's driving the market and 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 holding rents, holding it up. That that people have got their budget and they're happy with less space if it's better space. The quality of space becomes absolutely top of I think every occupier's list, and this is about their employees, right? It's not about a CFO or CEO or, or making decision on on kind of where where you go because of where your CEO lives. It, we, this applies to our business in the same way it applies to the people taking space from us. We need to think about how we get people back to work and give them reasons, compelling reasons to return to the office. And 
you need to make it wonderful and it's got to look fantastic and they've got to have a great experience and feel good when they're there and enjoy being there and enjoy their work. So, so, so yeah, so, but that's, that's the other thing. I mean, it's not just about designing great coffee. It's about a job that allows you, allows you, I can't speak, well, yeah, allows but, you to create impact. Yeah, of course. But, but look, we, our responsibility is to deliver on the environment and the service. So if we can do that, then we're helping those companies in attracting those employees and keeping them. And right now in this market, it's damn tough to hold on to people. Mm. And what do you think the industry needs to do to improve that in terms of getting better people, more diverse backgrounds into the market? I think uncomfortable conversations. I think you need to be talking about these issues and, and addressing them and getting called out on them. And again, it's sort of, you can talk about it is is the start, but yeah. then you have to do something about it. And so our approach to diversity is uh, something that's front and center when it comes to our employment and who we, you know, we're trying to attract to our business. I can only speak for our business. I can't influence what our clients do in their, mm. uh, when they come and take space from us. But you're but, an extension of their business by, by default. Yeah, well, if you think about front of house, the front of house in a building is their, their front, front of house, house. Uh, employed by us. So... I think that this is we have to work hard on it. It doesn't just happen on its own. Hmm. So what comes next then? What comes next for Tog? You've had a difficult year like everybody else, but as you say, you seem to have sprung back quicker. You're helping people be more productive. What does the next 18 months hold for the business? Are you looking at more acquisitions? Are you looking at taking on more development? Uh, I, I so I, I very much looked at this year. Uh, Ollie and I looked at it as a, a sort of three phase year. So the the, the the January, this was continuing to manage cash and be very careful on costs and just do all the right prudent things for the business. Phase two was uh, about restoring confidence, and then phase three is about growth. And the phases aren't distinct; they bleed into one another, right? Yes. So we're in the we're in the restoring confidence phase, but but we are we have a number of deals in the pipeline. And I, th- I think as our, we have to rebuild and uh, uh, refill our buildings because they took a bit of a hit on occupancy, but we're doing that. We're doing it at the right kind of levels. So the confidence is, is building and building fast. So for us as a business, we need to think about, we've never been trying to grow for growth's sake. And I think that's important. We're real estate led. We understand bricks and mortar. We understand what people want from their space. So provided we find the right buildings that we believe we can create the right product in that we believe that people want, then we'll continue to grow. How we grow in terms of we'd love to buy more and we have Blackstone behind us that gives us the capacity to do that, but they're careful and they are considered in that. And so are we, and therefore we'll only buy the right buildings at the right price. We'll lease on some buildings, but you have to be careful because the leasehold model is what has caught out a lot of right, operators so historically. There's a certain company that got a bit caught out by that, wasn't it? Yeah. His name we will probably not mention. Yeah, So, uh, but I do think that, that there's real potential in partnerships growing, moving forward. And you're forward. looking at more managed agreements as well. Well, the Argent scheme uh, in King's Cross is a managed uh, structure. So we get paid a fee, a base fee, plus a, a top-up incentive fee. And that's... It's a, it's a big building. It's a significant building. Do you see that structure becoming a lot more of a feature in this sector going forward? If you think that landlords who own assets are trying to understand how they can attract people to their buildings, and if they think about that, you know, all the elements that we've talked about from sort of the design through to the level of service, that comes with an operational complexity, which is 
which is hard to adjust your business to if you've not done it before. Mm. So it is like running a hotel. It is an operationally intensive business. You can either take that on and, and try and enter the market in a branded way. Which is what a lot of the big agents, this is a lot of the big, a lot of the REITs yeah. are doing. And so you'll see more people come into it. You're going to see more landlords who will try and enter the market directly. You'll see new startups that come out of other companies, other operators who have left and decided to start on their own. Yeah. But you, I think, I suspect that the majority of, uh, of how we'll see growth in the sector will come through partnerships. Mm. Now, we would like to, we're happy to co-invest and, and, and share the risk and take a greater, uh, greater slice of the upside. And, and the partnership, of course, can be modeled and structured in many different ways. So it's it's highly nuanced. So you could happily sit side by side with British Land or Doe and, and do something with those guys. Yes, very much so. British Land have got their own. So Story is is, is a great product and doing very well. Doe, we partner in the sense that we, we lease three buildings from them and two are on, uh, on a revenue share. Yeah. But the, so we could become more sophisticated in the in that management structure, I think. And we'll we'll sit with others and we give them that opportunity to enter a market that gives them perhaps a, a wider access to to occupiers mm. and the opportunity to generate a higher return. Mm. And what about with residential? Because again, there's a huge amount of, of focus on mixed-use buildings now. The resi guys are starting to recognize that just simply having a Tesco Express on the ground floor isn't necessarily great for your brand. Is there scope for you to be doing stuff there, whether that's with student build to rent buildings ready for sale oh, you know we, was it we, too we, small for you no i think we're good at what we do it's kind of oh, no, i'm not saying build um, resi but i'm saying is there a to, to co-locate a tog facility within those sorts of structures oh yeah for sure Look, I, I, for sure especially as the lines are blurring in terms of kind of the the mobility of work then then for sure there's an opportunity to to be in mixed use schemes yeah no question but do you, do you think that a lot of these other guys now coming into this space, are they going to find that it's harder than it looks or is it, or is it, as, e is it as easy as they think it is? <laughs> it's not easy. We, we, look, the, the, like many people, we work super hard and it's, um, it's intense. It's not easy and we've been doing it for 18 years. I'm very lucky that from my first day, I happened to love what I did and I still do. So, I, you know, I'm fortunate in that regard, but it is, it's hard work. London is a tough place to, to do business. So, um, you know, you, you, this is competitive. Mm. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's just sort of end on a, on, a, on a positive. You've been a very big supporter of Norwood's charity that, that Blackstock has been uh, very proud to support as well. Tell us a little bit about your, your involvement with Norwood and, and what it means to you personally and, 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 and what you've been, you know, some of the things that you've seen through that, that, that partnership you have with Norwood over the years. Uh, well, it's an extraordinary charity. I, I first came into contact with them because I adopted my two children and Norwood were instrumental in supporting me through that at the beginning and going through the process. And it was just one of the services that they offered at the time. So I got to know them as, a, as an organization and my daughter's now 13 years old. So that's like 14 or 15 years ago. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thanks. And, um, and, and I have a son who's eight. And I, and I have friends who have kids who have, benefited directly from from Norwood as well. So look, run by extraordinary people and a benefit to children and adults alike. So I, I'm involved on the I'm on the property committee, so I help organize and, and raise money for 
for Norwood through that and the annual lunch that we have, which you are on that same committee. Yes, I am. It's a small world. But anybody listening that would like to get involved, please just head to the Norwood website or, or just drop drop me an email. Uh, I can absolutely wrap you into that and hopefully there'll be more in-person charity fundraisers coming soon uh, over the next well, over the next six months. But fantastic to, to have you in. Obviously here in real life, Charlie Green from the office group. Fantastic chatting to you. And and you'll have to come back, come back in six months and, and let, let, let's have a refresh about how how things have moved but but fantastic to have you on coming up we, we've got tons more exciting guests over the next few weeks on propcast but thank you thank you to charlie thanks again to charlie green from the office group thank you very much for listening if you'd like to subscribe please head please search propcast on apple spotify leave a review leave a positive review if you'd like to leave a negative one if you don't like listening um, but thank you very much for for sticking with it i'm andrew teacher from blackstock consulting thank you and we'll see you soon bye-bye